0: first Sunday of the year what to preach on and I found myself looking towards what Paul said in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Paul writes these words therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Those of you who know the book of Romans well will know that in the preceding 11 chapters of this book, Paul has been speaking about many things. He has spoken about the fall of man. He's spoken about justification by faith. He's spoken about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. He's spoken about predestination, about election, about the destiny of the Jewish nation, and quite a few other things as well. None of it is exactly light bedtime reading. And Paul ends chapter 11 with an euphoric doxology, exulting in the mind-blowing dimensions of God's intelligence and God's cosmic purposes. At the end of those 11 chapters I think we are left gasping with intellectual exhaustion and yet in those preceding 11 chapters there has been one notable omission there's not been really one word about Christian ethics about practical Christianity has Paul forgotten about that not in the least but that comes in volume 2, and volume 2 starts in chapter 12. This is where practical Christianity belongs, <clears throat> according to the Apostle Paul. It starts with a therefore, is volume 2 of the theology book, because according to the Apostle Paul, practical Christianity is not an alternative to doctrine but a consequence of doctrine so therefore paul says you've heard me say a number of times here whenever you see a therefore in scripture ask what it's there for and one word summarizes the opening verse one and two of romans 12 old-fashioned word i want to use consecration Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Consecration. This is where our response to all that doctrine that has gone before starts with an act of personal dedication to God. And this morning, I want to point out several things to help us as we go into a new year with this personal dedication, this consecration to God. First of all, did you notice the emphasis on motive? Paul says, do this in view of God's mercy. This is where our response to all that doctrine that's gone before starts with an act of personal dedication to God. Did you notice the emphasis on motive? Paul says this, do it in view of God's mercy. Now that's important, for you see, people will often point out to us that superficially at least... Christian ethics do not seem always to be that much different from the ethics taught by other religions and the ethics taught by non-religious people. But that may be true, but the Christian motive behind practising those ethics is very, very different. Let me explain. Quite often, what a Hindu thinks is good will not be completely different from the Christian's idea of good. Why does the Hindu do good? Well, he or she does good because he or she believes that the law of karma is at work in the universe, and that law of karma will pay him or her back. Take the humanist. Again, what the humanists think is good will not sometimes differ that much from what Christians call good. But why does the humanist do good? He or she does good because he or she believes that the greatest happiness of the greatest number of people is the reasonable goal in life i want to suggest you the difference that paul points out here is the difference of motive why does the christian do good a christian does good because a good god has saved them from judgment it all flows out of the mercy of God. It's a response. That's what is distinctive about Christian ethics. That is what is what distinctive about Christian practice. We are not motivated by pride. We're not motivated by self-interest. We're not even motivated by duty. We're motivated by gratitude. And it follows, therefore, that the more conscious we are in our minds and hearts of God's mercy, then the more Christianly motivated we shall be. Jesus said as much, didn't he, when he said, he who has been forgiven little loves little. Little sense of God's mercy, then your response will be small. But he who has been forgiven much loves much. Our response is going to be proportionate to our perception of the grace and mercy of God in our own experience. So, if we feel we we lack practical consecration in our lives, the obvious reaction is not necessarily the right one. You see, the obvious reaction when you feel, some, you feel you lack some dedication to Jesus is to try and whip up uh, some greater zeal in ourselves, to redouble our efforts, to discipline ourselves. And of course, those things are not without value. But if we are not careful, that approach can turn our Christianity into a burdensome weight around our necks and it's not intended to be that jesus said his yoke was easy easy because the religion of jesus is a religion of response not a religion of achievement in view of god's mercy says paul now if we lack motivation the answer is to read again The story of the cross. The answer is not to terrify ourselves with thoughts of the judgment we deserve, but to humble ourselves with the thoughts of the heaven we've been given. And that's the secret of the consecrated Christian. He or she has a deep and lasting perception of the mercy of God. You see, salvation is not some theological buzzword, but a personal experience of rescue. Like the psalmist says, he has lifted me out of the mire. He set my feet on the rock. He's put a new song in my mouth. The deeper we feel that, the more consecrated, the more dedicated we will be to our God. So the first thing I want you to notice is this emphasis on motive. The second thing to notice about this consecration is the scope of it. Notice what Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Offer your bodies. Now, Paul does not mean by that phrase that we surrender to God our arms and legs rather than our minds or our emotions. To divide a human being in that way is just foreign to the mind of Paul. Paul always conceives of a human being as a psychosomatic whole. So when he says offer your bodies, he's meaning offer everything you are. You see, the body is simply the organ of expression of the whole personality. Offer everything you are to God, says Paul. And notice the attitude with which this consecration is to be made. Paul says, it's your spiritual worship. Now, I have to say the NIV rendering there is not a good one. The original word translated here by the NIV as spiritual really is a word which means logical or or rational. In the old King James Version, It has a translation like this. It is your reasonable worship. And I think what Paul seems to be saying here, he's making a contrast between the religious response required by the Old Testament and that required by the New Testament. He's comparing, you see, the Christian life to sacrifice. Let me explain. In the days of Moses... Uh, A Jew, an Israelite, displayed his gratitude to God by coming to offer a dumb animal. The beast itself was unintelligent, and even as far as the worshipper was concerned, the whole sacrificial was so wrapped up in mystery that the person offering the sacrifice probably did not understand it. But that's what worship meant to him. There was not much reason involved in it. But Paul is saying here, with the coming of Christ, things have changed. We still offer a sacrifice, but it's a different sacrifice. First of all, not a dead sacrifice, it's a living sacrifice, ourselves. But more than that, it's not the sacrifice of some irrational beast. It's the sacrifice of a mentally aware, intelligent human being. A living sacrifice. That is our reasonable, rational worship. And these are the sacrifices God wants, says Paul, under the new covenant. Those Old Testament sacrifices could only be holy in a, a ritual and ceremonial sense. But now, Paul says, because the Christian offers himself, herself, In this voluntary, intelligent way to God, a moral dimension is added. The holiness of a Christian's consecration. And this is pleasing to God in a way which goes beyond anything the Old Testament could provide. And one thing that does mean, I think, that a whole idea of what worship is has to be expanded. Many of us use that word worship in far too limited way. We think of worship in terms of listening to the preacher, maybe back at home saying a prayer, having a Bible study, sitting with a group of Christians, singing. But whatever ideas we have of worship, they are what I want to call thoroughly pietistic ideas. But what Paul is saying here is that worship is much bigger than that. Worship involves the giving of our whole lives to God. It's a a seven-day-a-week thing, 24-hours-a-day thing. It embraces the whole of life. And we must have a spirituality which encompasses all of our lives. That's what Paul is describing here. And that's the challenge here as we go into the new year. But perhaps the most important thing to note from these verses on consecration, on dedication, is the emphasis that Paul makes about distinctiveness. Did you notice in verse 2? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul here uses two quite fascinating words. First, the word conform. And then the word transform. Now that word conform means literally to take the external shape of something. And Paul says here, in strong terms, there's a danger that Christians will take the shape of the world around them. Now in the absence of other influences, this happens very unconsciously and almost inevitably. The vast majority of our behaviour is learned behaviour. We learn it from our parents, we learn it from our peer groups, we learn it from society at large, we learn it from the media. Subtle cultural influences are always working away at us all the time to squeeze us into their shape. A shape determined by, quote, what Paul says later, the spirit of the age. But much of that culture is godless, isn't it? It's materialistic. It's self centered. It's amoral. It's what Paul calls the world. And the New Testament cons- consistently warns us as Christians to be aware of that world, that godless culture. Don't love the world, the scripture says. The craving of man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he is and does, that's not of God. And to be a Christian is inevitably to take a stand against prevailing culture. And to be a Christian is to assert values the world does not endorse or sympathize with. And that's what Jesus meant when he said we Christians are to be a light in the world. We are to be salt in the world. And yet as I say there is always a danger of conforming the salt may lose its taste through compromise with the world's values and the danger of conforming to the world is always there and Paul simply says you must not let it happen you must be a non-conformist and the way to do that is to be transformed And that's another interesting word. It's literally the word from which we get our word metamorphosis from. That process that we've seen on the screen already when a a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. And like the word conform, it means to change your shape. But there's a very important difference between conform and transform. And it's this, that to transform means strictly to take on a new inner nature. And that's what Paul is talking about here. You see, to be a Christian is not simply to change one stereotype for another. It's not to give up on the world's culture and embrace a Christian culture instead. Of course, often we think it is. Often becoming a Christian is simply coming to a group who simply behave in a, a different and perhaps peculiar way to others. But that is not what paul is talking about here he's talking about being transformed from within a new nature planted into us into our personality and that new nature works its way out in the whole of the person's life remolding their shape beating out the world shape and imposing a christ a new christ-like pattern and that ongoing transforming work is a continuous process isn't it we should expect it to be happening all the time as we are instructed by the spirit of god discovering within us a new identity which is christ-like we should always be looking for change for god is always at work in us changing us so paul says be transformed and notice what the crucial element in this transformation is, the renewal of your mind. You see, although a Christian is born again by the Spirit, the effects of sin are not eradicated from our lives just like that, are they? Should we be defeatist? No, we shouldn't. Should we be defeatist because sin may dog us all through our lives? No, we shouldn't. There has been something new started in our lives. And where has it started? It started in our minds, the renewal of our minds. And since it is from the mind that all human activity is directed, the secret of consecration and dedication to Christ means that we have to have that victory in our minds. Paul if you go through the New Testament scriptures Paul emphasizes again and again in his writings he brings our attention to this link between the renewing of the mind and the consecration of our lives the secret of Christian living is Christian thinking and the implication of that is quite simple we need to Be careful about what we feed our minds on. If we want to see our minds renewed, if we want to see that transforming process, we must not stop that renewal by putting stumbling blocks in the way. I have in mind the books that we may read, the films we watch, the TV you watch, the habits of thought we entertain. These things can corrupt or purify our minds and that's why Paul says in that famous passage in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 he writes this finally brothers whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is admirable if anything is excellent or praiseworthy think about such things so I want to challenge you this morning on this first Sunday of a new year to look at Romans 12, to consecrate, dedicate your life, to give your all to God, to think about the things that get in the way and get rid of them so that you may, your minds may be renewed, that you may be transformed. And Paul goes on to say, we won't have time to do it this morning, that when such things happen, when your mind is renewed when you are giving your all to God, you will know in very clear terms God's guidance, God's leading. Amen.